I think that human beings are motivated primarily and most effectively by fear. And I think that unless we see the danger and can touch it, it doesn't have an impact on us. And frankly, we can't see yet. It's not really wrecking our lives right now, climate change. So we're not afraid. I think that's a big barrier. We read about it, but it's not tangible for us yet. We still go to our cottages in the summer. We still, we still go downtown and we still do. We still live our lives pretty regularly. This is all going to happen 10 years from now. Well, I think that's, a, that's one big problem. Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? and how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change. Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I am thrilled to have Jeff Smith as my guest today. In the world of climate change mitigation, Jeff is probably best known for his leadership of the Carbon Impact Initiative, a building industry-led action plan in support of Canada's international climate change commitments. I have known and worked with Jeff for many years and have come to admire him as both one of the construction industry's most respected leaders, but also as a great guy. He is one of those rare people who is successful, intelligent, and incredibly competent, while also having a real sense of humility and a wonderful sense of humor. These are the qualities that have made him such an effective industry leader and innovator and why I wanted to interview him for this podcast. Jeff is the president and CEO of Ellis Dawn, an employee-owned $5 billion a year construction services and technology company. After earning a law degree from the University of Toronto, Jeff was admitted to the Ontario Bar in 1981. He joined Ellis Dawn in 1983, gaining experience across various management positions, including field operations, legal and labor relations, and executive leadership. After being named president and CEO in 1996, Jeff set about reinventing Ellis Dawn as a cradle-to-grave services provider, including the creation of capital services, facilities management, and sustainable building divisions. More recently, Ellis Dawn has created pioneering initiatives in energy management, smart buildings, software and data analytics, and modular construction. In addition to leading Ellis Dawn, Jeff has also played a significant role in the civic life of Toronto, Ontario, and Canada. He has served as a curriculum advisor to Ryerson University, on the board of Halton Health Services, and chaired the technology in the city campaign for George Brown College. Jeff was also the past chair of the Ontario Liberal Fund and is a founding member and chair of the Ontario Global 100 Board, an initiative to enable Canada's fastest growing companies to become exporters to the world. Jeff co-chairs the Unity for Autism Golf event and is on the board of directors for the Business Council of Canada and is on the National Council of the C.D. Howe Institute. Jeff told me that he views Ellis Dawn as a values-based proposition above all else and that trust, complete openness, Mutual accountability and entrepreneurial enthusiasm serve as the company's foundation, wherever it goes and whatever it does. He believes that in the end, being the nice contractor 
is Alice Dawn's most powerful strategic advantage. And indeed, these core values have helped earn Ellis Dawn consistent accolades, including Aon Hewitt's 50 Best Employers in Canada, Deloitte Canada's 50 Best Managed Companies, Canada's Top 100 Employers, and Waterston Human Capital's Canada's 10 Most Admired Corporate Cultures. Jeff has also collected some very impressive personal accolades. He was the recipient of the Ontario General Contractors Association Jock Tyndale Award for Integrity in 2011, the Ernst & Young Canadian Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2013, and the Donald P. Griffin Sr. Construction Industry Achievement Award presented by the Toronto Construction Association in 2020. In our conversation, Jeff and I talk about how climate change and carbon emissions came to be such an important concern for Jeff, and what Ellis Dawn is trying to do about it, what the construction industry can do to make a difference in moving the needle on carbon emissions, the big efforts Ellis Dawn is making to tackle the opportunities and challenges associated with mass timber, given its potential to significantly reduce embodied carbon and lockup carbon, and what will be required to actually meet our commitments to the Paris Agreement and reduce carbon emissions before it's too late. We also talk about losing hope and what we need to do about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. I've really been looking forward to this podcast for some time, so it's great to finally be talking with you. It's great to be here. Nice to see you. There are so many things I'd like to talk about today, but to frame our conversation, why don't we start by talking about how carbon emissions and climate change became such a big concern for you and what that means to how you're leading Alice Dawn. So I I guess I'd say three things, Uh, Craig. One is... You know, like everybody else out there, I, I read the news, I, I pay attention, and as a result, just like most people, I'm, I'm scared half to death. I'm scared for the future. I'm scared for our species. The, the second thing is, uh, it was interesting, I just had a grandson, and you know the way they say that there's nothing that focuses the mind like a hanging sentence? Well, the hanging sentence is for my grandson. Yeah, because and, he's, he's got to live through it. Or not. Yeah, or not. And... It, it was interesting how it really brought it home to a person. And then the third thing, just to answer the, the second part of your question, is I, I, I came to realize how big a part of the problem the construction and development industry is, where depending on how you measure, 30 35%, something like that, huge, and uh, not getting a lot of attention, and so far haven't been doing a whole lot. So we realize, even before, we have to realize before we're told to do it, that we need to pull up our socks and get to work here. So that's how I got focused. So Ellis Dawn is probably the largest and most sophisticated general contractor in Canada with over 2,500 employees. It's also a banker, a developer, an IT developer. That's a lot of expertise and horsepower under one roof. So with these kinds of resources, what are you and your team gearing up to do to move the needle on climate change? So, so a few things. But the, f- the first thing we did and our team did here is we committed Elliston to the Paris Agreement. So everybody's familiar with those goals, but we've tied ourselves to something called the Science-Based Target Initiative, which is you know an independent uh, accountability, independent measuring agency. Right. So we're not just saying we're doing it. Yep. We've tied You've ourselves to somebody who is going to tell us and make it clear to the public whether we're doing it or not. And just to be clear, that that calls 
within our industry and within our company for something like 50 to 60% reductions between now and 2030 or shortly thereafter just to hit Paris, right? We've got, among other things, I'll touch on a couple of things, we've now got a full-time position called Director of Decarbonization. So we're putting real overhead and resources behind it. We've got here a construction sciences R&D team that is working with the industry, steel and concrete. Everybody knows those are big offenders, but they want to solve the problem too. So we're working uh, directly with them to get at the main point, to get the main problems and the most intractable. And they're going to listen to you. I mean, you folks, listen, procurement, they're, they're going to procurement, do, do so much buying from them. They're going to listen. And, and we've got really smart people yeah. here. And these people are not resistors. They, they want to solve the problem. It's not easy. So let's work together. We're getting no resistance, nothing but enthusiasm for at least getting at the problem. We've set targets for our own. Remember, we, we only do about 10% of the work on our sites, but we still set 100% elimination of carbon of our own direct, you know, in our offices and the work we do by 2030. That's, will that move the needle? No. Will it set an example to everybody yeah. that they have to get on board and help move the needle? Yeah, hopefully. Now, the bigger impact, of course, is going to be the broader supply chain, all of our subs and suppliers. We'll talk about that. It gets kind of complicated. That's next. And the last thing I just say is we're really actively trying to start conversations with governments now. They have not, as I said earlier, they've not had their eye on, the, on our industry. They need to get their eye on our industry, not to penalize us, but to help us. To partner. That's where we're really engaged now, those sort of areas. What about potential? Where do you think the building and infrastructure sector has the biggest potential to make a difference in reducing greenhouse gases? And, and what's the best way to get there? Well, so... Or a good way to get there. Those are very big questions. So let's start with where the big big sort of potential opportunities (laughs) are, what we have to tackle. Uh, As you know, we have to start building not just one-offs as examples, but across the board, carbon-neutral buildings, carbon-consuming buildings, everything we build should should be like this. Now, everything that you design that we build, let's not build any more polluting buildings. As a subset of that, you know, where's the biggest potential? Just what I said a minute ago, steel, concrete in the materials. We've got to do more 3D printing, more, what do they call it? Additive manufacturing, they call it now. Big problem, therefore big opportunities in the materials. And then just construction methods, the construction supply chain with 40 subs on every site operating with their own independent supply chain is really not helpful for producing a carbon so we've got to get at that, and we've got to tackle energy conservation, how we generate energy across the board. Those are the four biggest areas. Nothing easy about any of that, and I, I'd like to give you a big rosy, oh, we're going to do this tomorrow. No, there's a not difference. a lot of rosy right now. There's, more there's a whole lot of science, a whole lot of slogging, yeah, yeah. just a whole lot of getting at it. It won't happen tomorrow, but it has to start to happen yesterday uh, with some real urgency. Yeah, and I I know one of the things that you folks are doing that few others are doing, you have a group of like 50 people doing building science. And one of the big pieces of that is mass timber. So you're leaders in that, not just in sort of putting it together, but in actually understanding what it is and how it works. We are unique, I think, Elliston, I'll boast just a tiny little bit here, in that we have a freestanding construction sciences R&D division. Within that are some of the things that I talked about all the, the internal scientists and engineers going after steel and concrete come from that division. But we've also got a group there that's doing mass timber. The two or three of the 
brightest young people, I think, in this in this company really wanting to tackle the world. They're working with your firm, I know, and we're changing building codes, we're changing methods, we're changing how high and how broad and how deep and how complicated mass timber buildings can be. We've come a long way in just the last two like or three years. Two or three years, right? Yeah. And we're fast. working with the unions. The unions have really embraced this, so there's a lot happening there. What are some of the best levers to pull to make this happen? We started talking about it in one well, When material. I saw this question, I was thinking bigger picture. Yeah. So we, we can maybe drill down in a minute. But what are the big levers to help us? I think the governments need to weigh in more forcefully than they have around regulations and laws and telling us and telling our clients specifically you will change what you are building and how you are building and you will do it in this way by this date or you will not be building. Mm -hmm. I just don't see it happening. Setting the ground rules. I don't see yeah. it happening fast enough if you leave it to the market and for everybody to get the picture that we really have to do this. If you want to have, how did we get rid of acid rain? Like I, I know I'm the old person in the room, but if you remember the 70s, they outlawed it. Right. They outlawed acid rain. So outlaw carbon. Yeah. I think that's the big thing. And then the second thing. And, and CFCs, they did the same thing too. Exactly. Yeah. CFCs. Yeah. And then, then they were gone. Yep. Like pr pretty quickly. Yeah. Really. And then the second thing, and I'm sorry because I know everybody says this, <laughs> but government funding is going to be required to help pay the green premium. We've got to pay it. The, the burden is going to have to be spread effective incentives. That I'll give you an example in, in a few minutes some funding, but more importantly, the laws. Do it by this date, seatbelts. Do it by this date, or you will not be doing anything. You'll find we'll change pretty quick. Right. Give people a horizon. Well, you've almost answered my next question, which is, when he calls, what advice will you give to the new Canadian Minister of the Environment, Stephen Guibault, about what the federal government should be doing to help us make so, this happen? I'm going to rephrase your question and say, if he calls, because <laughs> I'll get to that in a second, I would say end your singular focus on oil and gas. Mm. You know, we all kind of get oil and gas, and everybody's made it the big bogeyman. We're not going to get off oil and gas tomorrow, and everybody knows it. But the federal government, and I think Minister Thibault to a certain extent, if I may, is very focused on oil and gas. They're 30% they're of the problem, maybe. They're no bigger than we are. So come and talk to us, and then work with us. Don't come yeah. yelling and screaming. We want to solve the problem as much as you want. So A, call. Yeah. If he's going to call, I'd say, thanks for the call. I wasn't expecting it because I'm not. Uh, we're reaching out to them. But I hear he's a nice guy and very bright and all that. But he, they need to broaden their perspective. And then they need to come and say, what can we do together? We've got lots of ideas. And then I'd say, you give us the legislation. We'll work within it. Well, maybe he'll hear this podcast. Maybe he will. <laughs> and I hope I didn't offend him by, no, I don't by saying so. that. I'm sure he's a tough guy. What about adaptation to the impacts of climate change? For the past few decades, most of the attention has been focused on reducing greenhouse gases, but we're now entering a new era of powerful climate impacts, the likes of which we've never seen before. What should the building and infrastructure sector be doing to get ready for these impacts, like severe weather events, winds, rain, and flooding, and heat? In other words, the four horsemen of the climate apocalypse. So there's two or three things and th there will have to be, a in my view, a balance and a combination. First of all, build the protections. It'll be required. You're going to have to build stronger buildings. You're going to have to build retaining walls. You're going to have to build, frankly, 
the structures and the heavy structures that will keep to a certain extent the impact of climate change at bay. The severe storms, the big water coming up, the rising tides. Design, you have a big part to play in this. But there's also a big decision that we have to make as a society now. You're not going to be able to protect every town on every coastline. Right. You're not, you're just simply, we've seen it recently, we'll get to it in a second, the severe climate events on the West Coast recently. Only so much you can build so fast. Sophie's choice. Exactly. Well, I think you can do a little bit of both, but I think we're going to have to talk about how much we adapt. How much do we have to face the fact that the water is rising? How much do we have to face the fact that our geography will, to a certain extent, change? And there's nothing we can do to stop it, regardless of what we do to address climate change. And so that's about adaptation. And I think those conversations have to start happening right now. We need to start making the decisions. We need to start budgeting for it. We need to start recognizing how much it's going to cost and where we're going to spend the money and how much. Yeah, they're very difficult questions, but I think that it's probably going to be a conversation that there's got to be more of. You have talked before about Ellis Don now having to be in the IT application development business to be a successful contractor. So putting on your hat as the CEO of your IT company, what role do you think big data, machine learning, and artificial intelligence could play in leveraging our ability to cope with climate change? It's an interesting question because I think AI is all about prediction. So AI is all about predictive models. Frankly, I don't think you'll see that coming out of the construction industry in time to address climate change. I don't think that's necessarily a, a fatal problem because we're just getting our act together on AI and we'll be another five years. And if we haven't done anything on climate change for five years, we're, we're toast anyway. So, But I do think the models are there. I do think the AI and the predictive models are out there. You and I have both seen them. Everybody sees them in the, in the paper and on the, everywhere. So the, the models and the predictions, we know what we have to do, generally speaking. We, we know the decisions that have to be made. So I think I, AI and prediction plays a big role, but I think that's already happening. We just need to pay attention to it and follow it in design and in construction. That's, that's what I think in the short term, and hopefully we can carry our own weight a few years down the road. So generalizing from your own experience, what do you think are the biggest challenges and barriers to coming to grips with how we meet the realities of climate change? I'd like to ask you this question, but the biggest challenge seems to me, I I think that human beings are motivated primarily and most effectively by fear. And I think that unless we see the danger and can touch it, it doesn't have an impact on us. And frankly, we can't see yet. We're starting to, come that in a second, it's not really wrecking our lives right now, climate change. So we're not afraid. I think that's a big barrier. We read about it, but it's not tangible for us yet. We still go to our cottages in the summer. We still, we still go downtown and we still do. Yeah. We still live our lives pretty regularly. This is all going to happen 10 years from now. Well, I think that's, a, that's one big problem. Intellectually, we understand it. We can't and feel it. But we don't feel it yet. Yeah. Right. Well, so it doesn't, it's right now December and it doesn't feel like December right now. Looking out there, it's green. There's no snow. It's But you walk outside and you go, what a nice day. Yeah, that's right. You don't go, this may be a harbinger of terrible (laughs) Terrible things things to come. come. You go, you say to yourself, I actually quite like this. (laughs) I didn't need to put my coat on today and it's Christmas. But so it doesn't make you as afraid as it should. The other big barrier, I think, is that we are still a society that is based on and lives off of economic growth. Yeah. And that includes often population growth. And 
I think there may well be, we can adapt our economy to a carbon neutral or carbon free, but it'll take a long time. And there will be short term pain. And in the meantime, and I was thinking, what am I going to do after you and I finish this conversation today? I'm going to go back to my desk and I'm going to start thinking about market share, yep. right? That's what we do. And I think that's a huge barrier. We're not prepared to face the economic upheaval that is going to be required in the short term to make the change. And then the, the third thing, I'll just say it, is to me, to far too great an extent, climate change has become ideological. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's become We're seeing political. that especially in the, in the States. And if you're not, if you're for climate change, you're a liberal. And you're, uh, yeah, and it is more in the States, but it bleeds up here too, right? And we, it's just a barrier. We can rant about it all we want, but is it a material barrier in the States? We've seen Joe Manchin, the senator, say, I don't care. I'm not doing this stuff because it's going to cost me short-term economic pain for my people and blah, blah, blah. Right? And people get put in camps. And, and in one very big camp are anti-climate change people. And there's a, if democracy is under threat and the autocrats are on the rise, I don't see too many autocrats out there really worrying about climate change. Maybe you see them, I don't see them. No. So those are the three big barriers that I see. I hope you're enjoying this episode of the 21st Century Imperative podcast. We've certainly enjoyed producing it. As you know, 21st Century is a not-for-profit venture, but we still have production costs. So to help cover these costs, we've launched a new online store with all proceeds going to cover production. And we have some great products for you. We have organic fair trade t-shirts and hoodies, as well as non-toxic BPA-free coffee containers, all with great graphics. So if you like the podcast, please think about helping us out by buying a t-shirt, hoodie, or mug for you and one for each of your friends. Head over to our website at tfcipodcast.com and click on the 21st Century Store button. You asked me what really worries me, and it's my next question to you. And what about the insidious challenge of willful blindness? I, I think that scares me the most, our tendency to see only what we want to see. I think this is a huge problem. Just look at the craziness around COVID vaccinations. People's life is on the line. Like they can see friends dying, and yet they don't want to get vaccinated. I mean, it just... If we can't do that, how are we going to do <laughs> preparing for climate change? So it's been one I of the most actually, depressing things I've seen. I actually think it's worse than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so much for a podcast no, about hope. <laughs> oh, yeah, we get to hope. In the we'll get to hope, hope later. The, we'll get to hope way later. Maybe we'll run out of tape. Uh, think about beyond vaccinations. Think about people who have clear uh, cancer symptoms. And what do they do? They ignore them. Happens uh, all the time. Yeah, Why? Yeah. Because they're afraid. So when people do get afraid of what's going to happen with climate, they really, the f one very clear reaction among many people is that they, they ignore them because they're afraid to deal with it. Yeah. And then the second, sorry to torture my cancer <laughs> analogy, but I think it's, I think it's relevant is heavy smokers get lung cancer. They get diagnosed with lung cancer. What do they do? They keep smoking. Why? Because they're addicted to it. Right. We're addicted to carbon. Yeah. Yeah. I think those two, that willful blindness comes from those two things. Yeah. Fear. Yeah. And addiction. And addiction. Yeah. Having to give up so much. We're not willing to do it. We'd rather die. Just like, that's why the cancer, sorry, it's painful, but that's yep. why the cancer analogy. We'd rather die than yep. change. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, on the sorry to be on you know the, this, on the Merry, Merry Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> on the flip on the flip side of the challenges, what about opportunities? What are some of the key opportunities to deal with the fast emerging challenges and, and impacts of climate change? Are there any? We know the challenges and and how dire they are. What about opportunities that you know offer a little bit of hope, maybe? So I've got a couple. I've got some specifics. No, I do. I've got some specifics, and I've got some, uh, and and one general one which won't be that 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 hopeful. Uh, there are a lot of solutions out there, and people are, and we are. I'm going to give you one. We're using on the LRT, the big Eglinton LRT, a cementitious material that has got way less carbon in it than cement, complete with sensors that we use to make sure they're getting their strength, and all this high tech. It's basically high tech sort of concrete but it it's taken just the carbon savings from that you know along that line that we've introduced is is the equivalent of 25,000 cars for a year is 25,000 cars for a year going to solve the problem no, no but that's one solution yeah. on one site but if you did it did if you that. scale it if we and it will scale yeah these things will scale and, and yeah. there's hope there and and that's just one example across many industries we'll find many examples that's how we beat this thing building retrofits we are not going to solve this problem in our industry when tens of thousands of buildings I out there continue to spew Absolutely. carbon yep. but this is an opportunity we've been working on a uh, uh we've been working on a solution from a, a commercial economic standpoint in other words Tear down the skin on the building, put all new systems in, raise your rents, and you get a return on investment and you save the, the world. We probably need some government help just to get it going because, and we need the pension funds, frankly. I hope they listen to this podcast and don't get too mad at me. We need them to start investing. But A, we won't solve the problem without massive building retrofits, and B, the economic case can be made and has been demonstrated already. So there's an opportunity. And the last one I'd say to you in terms of opportunities, this one's a little more dire, is I actually think, and I, and I hope nobody gets offended by this, if you look at the tragedies in British Columbia recently, and then of course in California with the fires, and, and then of course everywhere, I think this is doing two things. It's making that fear tangible. Mm, you start yep. burning up, like actually burning up, as opposed to metaphorically burning up the planet. People say, oh, oh shit, my goodness. This, yeah. I'm not kidding this around is real. here. This is serious, and it's happening now. And the second thing it does is we can say, okay, well, now that we've seen what actually happens instead of what the model tells us, okay, well, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, we've got to do that. It'll help us solve the problem. I actually think in a negative way, the immediacy and the extent of these climate events, let's call them extreme events that we've seen, will help us solve the problem and understand the need to solve the problem. I think we've got to treat them as an opportunity because to not do so would be a big mistake. Those are good examples. And, and with respect to your second one, building retrofits, the thing that always got me about doing green new buildings is new buildings are 2 or 3% of the building stock every year. Yeah, give so us another 100 years to yeah, save we'll the do planet. it. So we have to figure out how to get to the other 98% of the buildings and fast. Right. Jeff, what are some of the more effective and consequential ideas you're seeing and hearing about lately? I talked about Eglinton. Yeah. Uh, we've touched on, on mass timber. Yeah. But there's really great things happening in mass timber. I've talked a little bit about manufacturing. Manufacturing 
you know, people see on the internet manufacturing houses or 3D printing houses, but it's coming to uh, much bigger and much more complicated buildings. And you're doing it right now with and we're modular doing it right housing. Now. So yeah. in, now nobody, frankly, including us, has figured out how to make any money at it yet, but we will, <laughs> right? Yep. So we'll see a component manufacturing for big buildings and then, you know, big stackable buildings that will will prefab in factories. Huge climate benefit to this kind of stuff. So those are the cues. Watch some of the green buildings that are going up. We're building some buildings right now. They're not done yet. I've only seen the renderings. They look like forests. They've got so many trees stuck on every balcony and every yep. window and all over the roof. These are happening now with very responsible clients who say yep. we're going to solve the problem. The green premium is is not insignificant yeah. to, to design a building this way. And I have to mention, Allied, you know, I criticize some some people generally, but let's name some people who are really working on this. Allied is the developer. And they're and, doing mass timber as well. And they're doing mass timber yeah. and, and West Bank. Yes. Uh, Ian Gillespie's company out there is doing it. He's We're looking at a building for them in downtown Toronto. They want to be completely green. So thinking about your grandson, what do you think? Can we do it? Are we going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? Uh, what gives you hope? What keeps you going when things look dark? Well, I, I don't. I don't get motivated by hope, and, and I'm, and I'm not that hopeful. You're not talking to a hopeful person. Hope doesn't actually. I don't want to say I'm not hopeful, but fear gets me motivated. Anger, unfortunately, gets me motivated. And my grandson gets me motivated because I'm more afraid for him than I am hopeful for him. So I'm sorry, you're talking to the wrong guy here. I love the optimist. The world needs optimists where we wouldn't get anywhere. Uh, I'm not one of them. I'll, yeah. be, I'll be hopeful when everybody else is terrified. So people are hopeful that you'll be successful. In being angry, <laughs> yeah. well, so so and am I. Fearful. <laughs> it's very discouraging right now. Greg. Oh, like, I know. It's just, and you see, like Brazil, right? What oh. I find it very discouraging. We need to do something in a hurry, and I, I don't see it happening. Yeah, we just all we can do is fight and hope for technology to bail us out at the last minute. That's why I think hope's important because otherwise you get too depressed without it. Well, even Bill Gates can't see the way out of it without technology yeah. that hasn't been invented yet. Yeah. So what advice would you offer listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference and meeting these challenges? I would say to people, listen, if, if you're in an industry, raise your voice. If you're in the world, raise your voice. But also never forget that the solution is largely micro. Mm -hmm. And you've got to look at your individual climate footprint. And you've got to lead the way here. And I was thinking, I'm going to give you a real quick anecdote. I hope it makes a little sense. I was actually on holiday two nights in a row a few weeks ago and we were down and the band was playing and nobody was dancing and we was just sitting there and the band is playing to nobody. Right? Two people get up and dance all by themselves and then nobody wants to be the first two. And then four people get up and then all of a sudden the dance floor is full. I saw it happen two nights ago in a row and it took me, I really had to think about it. So my advice to people would be, be those two people. Yeah. Because things get on a roll, and they mm -hmm. get on a roll in a hurry. Ten minutes later, that dance floor is full, but it yep. wouldn't have been without those, those two, two people. Those two people, yeah. 
I hope that example makes some that, sense. That we is, need more courageous leaders at the micro level. Yeah, I like that a lot. Finally, I'd like to ask you three rapid fire questions to wrap up our interview. What books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people and why? So I've only got one book. I'm, I'm sorry. Most of the books, <laughs> the really desolate books, as you and I have talked about, I'm already afraid. I'm already terrified. I don't need to read more books that are gonna, going to terrify me. I found Bill Gates, a recent book about solving climate change yeah. in the 21st century, whatever it's called. There's only one book by Bill Gates on this subject. He identifies the problem, he breaks down the problem, and he poses solutions across the various key sectors. You know, is it the most exciting, thrilling book? No, but no. if you're interested in the problem, it's got there's, all, a lot there's of good a book answers, to yeah. read, and he's a, he's a real realist. But frankly, on climate change, I think if you stick to responsible news sources, you get better stuff from what's breaking in the news. You know, the magazine articles, the cutting-edge stuff is not happening in books. It's happening out there in, the, in real time, and just you, you just grab every article and every innovation and every idea you can just get it from responsible places. Second question, if you had the power to implement one change, one innovation, or one policy in communities and cities around the world that would have the effect of significantly reducing CO2 emissions or helping adapt to climate change, what would it be and why? We, we, we've touched on it uh, because it's one that is close to me that I think you and I can get into. I would set targets for all the existing buildings and I would set them very like you know 2030 mm -hmm. kind of targets maybe 2035 but not very far down the road yeah. there there's a town in new york i can't remember the name but i'm sorry done have done this already for their town if they can do it we can all do it yeah. it's going to cost money the government's going to have to help but if i could do one change i would mandate that buildings fix themselves <laughs> that's great that's good third question if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times or the Globe and Mail of anything you wanted, written or graphic, that addressed your thinking on climate change, what would it be? This is a really tough question because on the front pages of the New York Times and the Globe and Mail, we've already seen so many yeah. things. We've already seen so many graphics. So I think that I would post a graphic of what Florida will look like in 2040. What will the West Coast of Vancouver look like in 2035 or 40 compared to what it looks like now. We know. Yep. And I think if you put up something graphic like that, people will go, okay, that's now I'm afraid. So that's the best I can do. Something that brings it home to people to where they live, live. and how they make their, their yep. living, how they eat. Their property and their and living. And so I think yep. some kind of graphic like that says, here's your home underwater. Have, uh, and by the way, it's all, it's not, that's already done. Like, you know, no, I know we're right, right now. I'm, um, teaching a course at U of T on, on sea level rise adaptation and Florida is, is toast. I mean, all of the Everglades are going to be underwater. So most of the towns and communities, it's, it's a disaster. Fellow I know is going to build a, a resort on the Turks and Caicos. You go, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Oh dear. <laughs> I hope you return. I hope you return after like 18 months. Oh dear. Uh, closing question. Uh, is there anything you would like to ask of our listeners? I just think I'd ask everybody to get louder. I don't think they're hearing us yet. Mm -hmm. 
I think there is, and I'm talking specifically about the politicians, I th and, and you know, the, the recent big conference in Europe, a lot of, what do they call it, virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of loose goals. Not good enough. Greta Thunberg we, would say blah, blah, blah. We <laughs> all got to be, you know, if everybody was Greta Thunberg, yeah. <laughs> I think we'd be better off yeah. and at least we'd be having the serious conversations about where and how and not just focus on these villains or that villain it needs to be a responsible urgent conversation but until people demand specifics they're going to get more virtual signaling get louder yeah. or virtuous signaling excuse me get louder and finally what are the social media links that listeners can find you at yeah well that's an impossible question to answer <laughs> So, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm not. How, how that, about that's your not, LinkedIn? <laughs> that's not the way. That's not the way to do it. I, I actually I answer all my own emails and I, I I do a whole lot of stuff. But I but somebody else manages my LinkedIn account because because we use it for hiring. But I would say this: within the next couple of months, Elliston will be launching. We'll be relaunching our website and i invite everybody to hold us accountable by what we say and what we do there okay. i'm 66 let's face it we're not going to solve this by the time i'm 67 or 68. there's a great new management team we have in place here jody becker and i warned her i would do this uh leads this she's an executive vice president here leads this effort for elliston follow jody becker very good you'll find her yeah, all of you I'll will find, all of you I'll will find, find her, her social media. And, and I invite you to. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Wait until Jody hears this. Jeff, thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. I hope that was okay. I've enjoyed it. It, it, it was awesome. Thank you very much. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we've discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website and by sponsoring the podcast on our Patreon sponsor page at patreon.com forward slash TFCI podcast. This podcast is ad free and relies entirely on listener support from people like you. So if you find our podcast interesting and valuable, please consider becoming a patron. Your sponsorship will not only help us cover the cost of production, but we will also be spending 50 cents of every sponsorship dollar to plant trees. To do this, we have formed a partnership with Community Forest International, who will not only be planting seedlings for you, but taking care of them to make sure they continue to grow and absorb carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So please head over to the Patreon page and become a sponsor. Until next time, thanks for listening.